Hey, and thanks for tuning in to the Father's House podcast. The Father's House exists to see people discover life in Jesus. We hope that today's message brings you fresh life and renewed hope as you listen. Enjoy. Okay, are you ready for the word? Someone say yes. I'm going to preach fast. You're going to listen fast because it's been a long service already, but here we go. Okay, we are continuing today in a series that we've been in for the last couple of weeks entitled Bewitched, uh, Good News Gone Bad, as we've been studying through the book of Galatians. It is a short letter that the Apostle Paul writes to a relatively young church in Galatia. And if you are new today or if you have not been in the room for the last couple of weeks, let me invite you to go back and check out the last couple of sermons as we've established a bit of a foundation going to this book. Uh, First week, talking about the grace of Jesus. Jesus and the gospel that Paul preached. And last week we had a little bit of a barbecue up here on stage and we talked about marinades and it was all kinds of fun. Uh, Actually, it was really offensive, but please go back and check it out. Lots of fun for me. Um, But for those that are here for the first time, let me give you a a little bit of a backdrop so that we can uh, kind of operate from the same foundation today as we go to the word. But our key text as we we get into this series, Galatians chapter three, verses one through three, where the apostle Paul writes, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? For the meaning of Jesus Christ's death was made as clear to you as if you had seen a picture of his death on the cross. Let me ask you this one question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit by obeying the law of Moses? Of course not. You received the Spirit because you believed the message you heard about Christ. How foolish can you be after starting your new lives in the Spirit? Why are you now trying to become perfect by your own human effort? And I've said every week, as we look at those last couple of sentences there, we can see why Paul is so frustrated. A group of people that started out in the grace of Jesus are now beginning to add rules and regulations and different guidelines that they think will make them right with God, when ultimately, Paul's gospel was very simple, very pure. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, it is by grace that we've been saved through faith and not of ourselves. Nothing we bring to the table really matters other than our faith. If we put our faith and our trust in the finished work of the cross and a resurrection, resurrected Savior, we are saved. It is that simple today. And that's the message that Paul established this church in Galatia on. But that's the message that was being challenged in in his day. And some of the Jews came back and they began to propagate an anti-gospel. In fact, he uses the word pervert the gospel as they begin to share with these new believers that there were in fact some hoops they had to jump through and some rules they had to keep if they expected God to be pleased with them. So so Paul comes with this letter in an attempt to get them back to the grace, to show them once again the simplicity of the gospel of grace. Let me put it like this. Uh, If grace was Jennifer Lopez, and if the Galatians were Ben Affleck, then Paul is coming and saying, just go back to the first Jennifer, man. That's the one you really want, all right? You're welcome. Okay, that helps somebody. I felt like it was really gonna help somebody today if I brought some cultural relevance into the text. Okay, never mind. moving on. So today we're gonna go to the next portion of this letter, Galatians chapter one, verse 11. Uh, Paul goes on to say this. He says, dear brothers and sisters, I want you to understand that the gospel message I preach is not based on mere human reasoning. I received my message from no human source and nobody taught me. Instead, I received it from direct revelation from Jesus Christ. You know what I was like when I followed the Jewish religion, how violently I persecuted God's church. I did my best to destroy it. I was far ahead of my fellow Jews and my zeal for the traditions of my ancestors. But, come on, watch this, he's about to preach at you. But even before I was born, God chose me and he called me by his marvelous grace. Come on, if Paul was preaching in a sanctuary like this today, that's where you take out the hanky and with your unmasked face, you start saying, hallelujah, preach it, white boy. Like that is what he's aiming for right here. He's trying to egg them on like, God called me by his marvelous grace before I was even born. 
That has been our thesis this entire series, that you were called by grace, you are saved by grace, and you are sustained by grace. Come on, it's the grace of Jesus that called you to him. It's the grace of Jesus that saved you through him, and it is the grace of Jesus that sustains you in him. That is the ultimate gospel. And that was the gospel that was being challenged here, hence the purpose of this letter. Now, these verses I read today, they are kind of the beginning of about a 26-verse rant where the Apostle Paul tries to legitimize his position as an apostle by recounting his personal experience with the grace of God. And when I first read through this portion of the book, I, I didn't really plan to preach a sermon about it. As I read through it, I thought, ah, there's not a whole lot of content here. It's you know, just Paul trying to flex on the Galatians and him trying to make himself feel better about himself so that they take him seriously. So I intended to skip on to Galatians 2.20, which I think we'll get into next weekend, shy of the Holy Spirit saying something else. But as, as I moved to, to study that next portion of scripture, I felt the Holy Spirit say, go back and read that passage again. Go back and read those verses again and just be a little slow about it and see, see if there isn't something there. And so I began to read through these 26 verses time after time after time. And as I began to read through them, I, I sensed how important these verses are to the completion of this book. I sensed how important these verses are to the establishment of the gospel. Because ultimately what Paul is doing in these scriptures is he's recounting his own personal experience with grace in an attempt to remind other people of what God is capable of doing. He is saying, if Jesus did this for me, if his grace worked on a guy as jacked up as I was, then won't he do the same for you? Isn't he that good that he could save someone like, if he saves someone like me, he can save someone like you. We have to remember when, when Paul begins to write these kinds of, of, of scriptures and these letters and he recounts his experience with grace, this is more than just him trying to argue on behalf of his theology. Ultimately, Paul believed what he believed because he had a personal encounter with Jesus. This was central to his theology. Uh, look what the, the, the New Testament theologian N.T. Wright says. He says, for Paul, his story was closely linked with God's unveiling of Jesus as the true Messiah the crucified and risen Lord of the world. Everything he said and everything he did from that moment on, and particularly everything that he wrote, flowed from that sudden, shocking seeing of Jesus. His life, his vocation, his whole identity was stamped with the gospel message of grace. Paul was who he was because he encountered the grace of Jesus. And this was not like he encountered a religion. This was not like he went to school to learn about the grace of Jesus. No, his arguments are pretty clear here in Galatians chapter one. Nobody taught me this. My mama didn't bring me up in church and so now I know this stuff about God. No, he said, I met with Jesus. He had an ugly cry, face to the ground, mascara running, fake lash ruining moment with Jesus. Emasculated down there on the ground, just encountering the reality of God. And so when these Jews made their way into the church and they began to question or, or, or suggest that Paul's gospel was illegitimate, they weren't just attacking his message. They were attacking a moment that he had in the presence of Jesus. They were attacking his encounter. And as I've said every single week in this series, and I'll say again, history has a way of repeating itself, doesn't it? There are still critics out there that would love to dissuade you from encounters you've had with Jesus. There are some people out there that would say, oh, that was just emotional. 
That was the guy in the background playing the whale keys. It was just all the church hype. That wasn't real. That people that may not look like the critics of his day, maybe they're not, you know, kippa adorning Jews, but they might be doubting family members, agnostic friends, atheist coworkers, persuasive professors. There's a lot of critics, a lot of people that would like to talk you out of what you believe. And don't get me wrong, there is incredible value in having a strong apologetic. You need to know the word of God. You need to know why you believe what you believe. Yes, there is an importance about knowing your doctrine and educating yourself about the things of God. All of that is invaluable. But at the end of the day, nothing compares with an encounter. Nothing compares with a moment in the presence of Jesus where you are convinced, I have met with the living God. You can talk somebody out of an education and you can talk somebody out of an ideology, but you cannot talk somebody out of a moment where they met with the risen Savior, Jesus. And so I guess my question for the next couple of moments as we we go to the word here again is have you had such an experience? Have you met with that Jesus that Paul met with on the side of the road so many years ago? Have you had an encounter that was so formative that it changed everything for the rest of your days? And to that end, I wanna title this chat today, The Moment, The Moment. You gotta lose yourself in the music, the moment. You gotta want it, never let it go. Cause you only get one shot. Don't miss your chance to blow. Opportunity comes once in a lifetime. Palms are sweaty, knees weak, arms are heavy. There's vomit on a sweater or forget him. Never mind. okay. I'll just do that for the next 20 minutes. It'd be great. <laughs> the moment, not that moment, not the Marshall Mathers moment. No, the moment we encounter Jesus. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. As we go to it today, transform our thinking, transform our lives. Thank you that you are here in our midst to meet with us personally. And uh, as we talk about something that we cannot create, we cannot create a moment with you, Um, I ask that Holy Spirit, by your sovereign grace, you would meet with people today. That many would walk out of this room saying, I have encountered the reality of Jesus. We love you. We pray this in your name. Amen, 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 amen. I have um, a a thought, I have a, a thesis for life and I think it's proven true for me and it's probably proven true for you, but I think that all of us are who we are because of some defining moments in our lives. There are the same collections of seconds, minutes, hours in any given day, but there are some days and there are some moments where something happens that changes everything from that point forward. Certain defining moments that affect all future moments, the moments that make us who we are. And that works both to the positive and the negative, moments of celebration and moments of pain. Uh, For example, um, the moment you took your first step, That was a a defining moment for you. You went from a belly crawler to an upright walker, something that some of the kids on stage today will eventually do, and it was a defining moment. The moment you uttered your first word, you went from communicating with grunts and screams and hand gestures to being able to articulate what you wanted. Defining moment, you never look back. Fast forward in your life, the moment you had your first crush, the moment you set eyes on somebody and thought, ooh, I like what I see there. Defining moment. Before that moment, you didn't care what you looked like. You didn't care what your breast smelled like. You didn't care what outfit you wore. But when that moment came, you suddenly went, oh, I need to spend a couple of hours picking out an outfit, ironing everything I've got, layering makeup on my face, bathing in Old Spice so that I can get to the affection of 
My heart's desire, yes. That was, <laughs> Ronnie. <laughs> yeah, you remember being 13 and doing that, don't you? Yeah, that's right. Defining moment. And maybe if that turned into a true love, there was another defining moment where you stood on the other side of an altar and you made some confessions publicly before God and people. Uh, I will love you and cherish you and in sickness and in health until death do us part. You're my one. A defining moment. Everything changed after that moment. But, but the same is true for negative moments in our lives. Maybe that same person who you said I do to was someone later on that you thought I don't to. And there was a moment where you collectively decided that this was not gonna work any longer. And you moved down a road where that companionship was now broken and you had to navigate through life for the rest of your days without that person. The papers were signed, the divorce was final. It's a dividing moment. Maybe it was the sudden loss of a friend or a family member, something you didn't plan for, a surprise diagnosis. That was a defining moment. I know that there's some families here today that Moments like this on Father's Day and Mother's Day when we're celebrating dads and new babies on the stage, that moment can be incredibly painful for some people because they've been trying for a long time to have children and they haven't been able to conceive. And they don't know if they'll ever have a family like some of the families that they saw up here on stage a few moments ago. All they remember is the moment where they were sitting in the doctor's office and the doctor said, that family that you've been dreaming of, it's not a possibility for you. You are in, unable to conceive. That's a defining moment. We are who we are because of some moments in our lives. And as it's true for you, so it's true for me. I have had both the positive and the negative defining moments. I know what it's like to have that conversation with a doctor, to be attempting for your, well, I wasn't trying to get pregnant, but we were trying to get pregnant. And I know what it's like to be told that you can't conceive. And for years, wondering why God would not answer that prayer. I, I know what it's like when your friends discover that they're pregnant and they weren't even trying and you and your spouse are left to deal with the pain of unanswered prayers and dreams that have been shattered. On the flip side, I also know the joy of discovering that miraculously, after years of trying, somehow Jesus opened up the womb of my wife and we were able to conceive our firstborn child. I know that moment as well, defining moment. Followed by a moment nine months later where a midwife handed me a baby and said, it's a girl, and I said, I can tell. And now as I'm holding this baby girl in my hands, I am keenly aware of the responsibility that I have to raise her, to protect her, to keep her from dumb boys. <laughs> Defining moments, say that. I'll say it again. I'm gonna put Crocs on her all of her life so that no one wants to be around her. It's gonna be great. No offense to anyone who wears Crocs. Actually, all offense to everyone who wears Crocs, okay. I remember a moment five years ago, sitting in my office in a chair, listening to worship music on day one of a 21 day fast, crying out to God, asking if this church that didn't even exist, it was just a dream, if that was his will or if it was something that I was trying to make up of my own doing and ultimately the Holy Spirit speaking to me in a moment and saying, no, that's the plan I have for your life. Go plant the Father's house, September 23rd, 2018, a moment where these doors open and now we get to see the fruit of what God's doing. Moment after moment after moment after moment, we are who we are because of defining moments in our lives. But there's a moment that eclipses all other moments. There is a moment that has the capacity to not just define your earthly existence, but define your eternal existence. 
A moment where the heavens are thin and you become aware of the divine. A moment where suddenly the God you weren't even sure existed reveals himself to you and the grace and the forgiveness and the love of Jesus becomes incredibly personal and you encounter the reality of a risen savior. The moment you encounter Jesus, that moment will change your life like no other moment. And for each of us, that moment is different. It looked different, it felt different. For some, it was incredibly emotional. For others, there was, there was no fanfare. It was entirely logical. For some, it was a, an immediate, one, uh, like sudden process. Others, it was slow. It was a slow burn. For some, it was in a car. It was in a bedroom crying out to God. For others, maybe it was in a church service. Others, in a hospital room or in moments of pain when we cried out and God revealed himself to us. But wherever and however it happened, there's one thing we all share in common. If we have experienced that moment, it changed everything about all future moments. The moment we encounter Jesus changes everything. And that is the moment that the Apostle Paul had. That is the moment he refers to here some 15 years later as he's writing this letter to the Galatian church. A collection of scriptures that have just passed by will miss the significance of, but a moment that Paul begins to recount because still 15 years later, it serves as the chief defense for the gospel that he has placed his life in. And that's the moment where everything changed for Paul. In fact, because God loves us, he's given us some scripture to show us that, what that moment looked like for him in Acts chapter nine. We'll go there in just a moment, but just a moment. But if this was so formative, if this was so significant, if it was so central to his life, I think we, yes, even a couple of thousand years later, would be wise to take a moment and study his moment because what happened in his moment might affect all of our future moments. So, so Acts chapter nine, starting in verse three, I'll give you the backdrop. Saul, who we now know as Paul, is on his way to a place called Damascus. And he's been given permission by the leading priests to do what he's done in every other city that he's gone into, uh, to go about a crusade where they would arrest and potentially even kill some of the followers of the way, people who believed in Jesus. Uh, Paul was a Pharisee among Pharisees, a Jew among Jews. He felt that it was his life's aim to rid the earth of this gospel of Jesus. Who was this Jesus who claimed to be king and who claimed to be God? And, and Paul felt that it was his, his, life's, uh, his life's aim, his life's goal to make sure that this gospel stopped with him. And so he would go into these cities and he would kill Christians and he'd arrest Christians and do whatever he could to break up the church. So he's on his way to such an event here in Damascus when he encounters the reality of Jesus, the one he doesn't even believe in on the side of a road. Uh, here's his story. He says, uh, it says that Saul was approaching Damascus um, on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone down around him. He fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I'm Jesus, the one you're persecuting. who do you think, bro? Now get up and go into the city and you'll be told what you must do. The man with Saul stood speechless for they heard the sound of someone's voice, but they saw nobody. So Saul picked himself up off the ground, but when he opened his eyes, he was blind. So his companions led him by the hand to Damascus and he remained there blind for three days and did not eat or drink. So, so Saul has this encounter with Jesus. He, he encounters the resurrected savior. 
And after he meets with Jesus, he goes into this city, but he's incapable of doing what he had planned to do. He doesn't arrest anybody. He just sits and he remains there blind. He meets Jesus and he goes blind. He meets Jesus and everything goes dark. I don't know about you, but that's not my story. (laughs) That's not how it happened for me when I met God. (laughs) Like I've never met anybody in my entire life who was like, oh my gosh, let me tell you about the time I met Jesus. I came to the Father's house. Oh, the worship was incredible. The preaching was a C plus at best, but it's okay, God got through it. And man, I met Jesus in that room. It was so powerful. And then I left and for three days I was blind. It was awesome. (laughs) No one's ever said that, right? (laughs) Like that is not a normal way to encounter God. Like I've asked myself many times as I read this scripture, why did we have to blind the guy? Jesus like, you, you, you clearly revealed yourself to him. You said, I am the resurrected savior. I am the Messiah. I am Jesus whom you're persecuting. Like there was no doubt in his mind that he had met with Jesus. So, so what's the deal with blindness? Why did we need to blind him? I mean, we're talking about the same Jesus who for three years literally opened up a bunch of blind eyes. That was like part of his ministry. He stood up in Luke chapter four and he quoted Isaiah 61 of himself. The spirit of the Lord is upon me and he's anointed me to open blind eyes. And let your soul. Like that... Why did he blind him? And I've thought about this, and I've thought about this. And this might just be my personal opinion, but I think it'll resonate with some of us. If you're a note taker, write this down. Sometimes you have to lose sight to gain vision. Sometimes you have to lose sight so that you can truly see. Sometimes you have to forget about yesterday if you stand any chance at looking into what God has for your tomorrow. Sometimes the only way for you to truly step into what God has for your future is to tear the rear view mirror off of your car and chuck that thing out the window so that your only option is to keep your gaze in the right direction. See, let's talk about Saul for a minute. Homeboy had a testimony, okay? He had a past, a colorful one at that. If there was ever a guy that would love to forget some of the things he did, it's this dude. Think about the names and the faces, the imagery of Christians being fed to lions, family members mourning as their kids and and their loved ones were fed to animals because of his zealous desire to kill off the church. Think about the haunting memories that a guy like this would have, the events of his past. If he looked in the rearview mirror, the things that he saw would have been the very evidence that would stood against his mission, the very evidence that would stood against his call that God was bringing him into. It would be the cross that he would crucify himself on time and time and time again. And Jesus knew that Paul did not need to take a cross because there had already been a cross taken for him. And so he had to prove once and for all, Paul, you cannot look into the past of who you used to be. I need to give you eyes to see what I'm bringing you into. And so I will blind you in the natural so that I can allow you to step into what I have. Oh, come on. We're going to go for it right here. Listen to me. As it was for Saul and Paul, so it is for you. Jesus has a plan for your life. I will say it till I'm blue in the face. We preached it all about it in our last series. It's a plan to prosper you, to give you a hope, and to give you a future. But you will never see what he has for your future if your eyes are stuck looking in your past. 
If your gaze is enamored with who you used to be and your failures and your mistakes and all the things that disqualify you, you will never be able to turn your gaze and face the one who is bringing you into something greater. As Paul said, this one thing I do, I forget what lies behind so that I can press on for that which Christ Jesus has pressed on for me, what he's taken hold of me for. You will never see it if you're looking in the wrong direction. But if you will fix your eyes on Jesus, if you will fix your gaze on him, the things of the past will become strangely dim and you begin to see clearly what he has for your future. I don't know about you, I'm really grateful that I serve a God that allowed me to go blind to who I used to be. I got my mom and dad in the room, so I will spare you some of the details today, but I was working on my testimony for a little bit, all right? I had a bit of a past. Some, some regrets, some mistakes, some things that I would not be proud to admit from a stage. But in one moment, I encountered the grace and the forgiveness and the goodness of Jesus. And I met the God who says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, I will keep no record of your wrongs. I met the God who says in Psalm 103, I will remove your sin as far as the east is from the west. I met the God who said in 1 John 1, 9, if you will confess your sin, I will be faithful to purify you from all unrighteousness. And I stand here today, yes, a broken vessel, a guy with a past, but I'm not looking at it any longer because my eyes are fixed on the one who is bringing me into the vision he has for my future. You have to lose sight sometimes to gain some vision. You have to lose sight of what was in order to lay hold of what he has for your future. And this is what happened with Saul. His, his gaze was changed. His sight was eliminated so that all he could see is what God had for the future. But here's, here's what I love, because Jesus is so good. That moment on the side of the road led to another moment a few days later, another defining moment in his life. A moment where he did not leave him blind to the past, but he gave them this new vision. Look at what, again, the Apostle Luke writes here in Acts chapter 9, verse 18. A guy named Ananias comes and he prays for Saul. God leads him to do so and says, as you pray for this guy, he's going to get his sight back. And instantly, it says, after Ananias prayed for him, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes and he regained his sight. Then he got up. And he waited for six months until he felt worthy and qualified. And then he went to an 18-week class. And after the 18-week class, and after he felt ready, he got baptized. Oh, that's not what it says. Okay, so he got up, and instantly he was baptized in water. Hallelujah. That's for somebody. Afterward, he ate some food, and he regained his strength. Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days, and immediately, 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 he began to preach about Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is indeed the Son of God. He lost his sight, and he gained some vision. In one moment, like a reptile shedding its skin so that it could step into the next season of life, something fell from the eyes of Saul and immediately he began to do something he never thought he would do. Immediately he began to step into something he never thought he would step into. Immediately he began to preach about Jesus. Friends, those were not just scales and the natural falling off of Saul's eyes. Those were ideologies, those were hatred, those were lies, those were deception, those were everything that would disqualify him from what God was calling him into. And it fell like scales from his eyes. He could see clearly now that the scales were gone. 
In one moment, everything changed. But you know what's interesting? The only physical thing that changed was his vision. The city didn't change. The people didn't change. The situation stayed the same. Only his vision changed. Same city, new vision. Same people, new vision. Same situation, new vision. I think sometimes we are begging God to change a situation. God, take me out of this marriage. Take me out of this job. Take me out of this city. Take me out of this situation. Not realizing that God has zero intention of changing any of your surroundings or any ounce of your situation. All he wants to do is give you some fresh vision for the situation you currently find yourself in today. I think God wants to send some people back to the same school with some new vision, back to the same job with some new vision, back to the same broken family with some new vision, back to the same community with some new vision. I think that's the reason that there's some people that are still sitting in this room in this quote, God forsaken city called San Francisco today. Because when everybody else looks at this place, they see a graveyard for churches that wants nothing to do with Jesus. But when we see this city, come on, when we see this district, we see something a little bit different. We see a people that are ready, a harvest that is ripe, those that desperately need the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so we see something differently. It's the same people that have been here all along, but we have some new vision. But listen, that, does not, that never happens. We never lose sight of the past. We never gain a vision for the future until we meet with the Holy One. Until there is a moment where we have come face to face with the reality of Jesus. And I know that there are many people here at this service that would say, Tim, I've had such a moment. I've met with God. I've encountered his grace. By the grace of God, I am who I am today. And for those that have had such a moment, I think that today the Holy Spirit would want to remind you to recall that moment. To make it just as real today as it was then. I know that there's some people here today in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, and you met with God when you were a teenager. Hey, that's just as real today. He's the same Jesus today as he was 30 or 40 years ago. And it's important that we call to memory those moments for the same reason that the Apostle Paul does so 15 years after his moment. Because the critics are still out there. There are plenty of opportunities to dissuade you from your faith. But nobody can talk you out of that moment. Nobody can talk you out of the moment you met Jesus. So remember it today. But for others in the room who would say, Tim, I, I don't know if I've had such a moment with God. I don't, I don't know if my understanding of Jesus, church, all this stuff is just cerebral, if it's intellectual, or I don't know what it is, but I, I don't know if I've, I've encountered God in, at that level. I think the Holy Spirit is inviting you into something today. He's inviting you into a moment. And, and as I articulate that a little bit more and I spend a few moments with just you guys and ask the band to come as we conclude here, but if that's you, just pay close attention for these last couple of minutes together. I have good news and I have bad news for you. I'll start with the bad news because that's what you're supposed to do. The bad news is you cannot calendar a moment with God. 
You, you just can't. You can't schedule the spiritual awakening. It doesn't work like that. You can't be like, hey, God, I'm looking through my calendar, and it appears as though on Thursday at 4 o'clock, I am available. Um, I'll be taking a trip to, uh, you know, Target over there in Daly City. So as I get off on the Saramonte exit, I would love for you to encounter me right there so that I can pull my car gently over to the side of the road. I don't want to be a traffic hazard. And if you could just open heaven right there and meet with me, that would be great. Sure thing. Okay, cool. Uh, Siri, remind me on Thursday at 4 p.m. to meet with Jesus. Like, doesn't work like that. It'd be nice if it did, but it doesn't. A meeting with God is sovereign. An encounter with Jesus is on his time. But if I've learned anything in the last 20 years of following Jesus, it's this. While we cannot schedule it, there is something we can do. We can position ourselves. We, we can stand ready to meet with Jesus. Theologians who are much smarter than I and they know history and some of the stuff that Saul might have been praying on the side of the road that day. Many of them agree that when Saul encountered God, he was in a time of deep prayer. It's important for us to remind ourselves as we read this stuff that Saul, yes, was an evil man in what he was doing, but he was doing it because he thought he was doing the will of God when he did it. As a devout Jew and a Pharisee, he, he, he believed that it was the will of God to rid the earth of those who were propagating this anti-gospel message or anti-God message. And so he was doing something in the name of God, even though it wasn't the right thing. And many theologians believe that while he was on this road to Damascus, he was in a deep time of prayer and he might've been praying prayers like that of Moses who said, Lord, show me your face. And he did. It was just not the face that Saul was expecting. It was the face of Jesus. So, so he had the right heart, but the wrong actions. I wonder if that's not all that God looks for sometimes. Someone who has an open heart, even if they don't have the other stuff figured out yet. So, someone who just says, I have a heart to meet with God and you don't know the Bible. You don't know where to find the thing in the leather bound book of stuff. I don't know the lyrics to the Hillsong tune and man, the bumper sticker on my car is definitely not Christian but my heart is open to receive from God. My wife's favorite verse in scripture, Psalm 27, verse eight. My heart has heard you say, come and talk with me. And my heart responds, Lord, I'm coming. What if that's all it takes? Just a heart that is willing and ready to meet with God. So much so that even a guy who hated Christians and denied Jesus, who had a heart to meet with God, encountered his reality on the side of a road to Damascus. That's how it worked for me. That's how I positioned myself. As I said earlier, we all have different stories about how we encounter Jesus and I've shared mine many times, but I'll share it again and I'll probably share it many more times before I'm no longer the pastor of this church and I'm buried in coma somewhere. So here it is once again. Spent most of my teenage years running from Jesus, faking my faith. And after many years, I kind of gave up on church for a little bit and gave up on God, but at 19, um, I felt the call to come back and I walked into a church building where nobody knew me, the place I wanted to be. No one knew my name, the opposite of cheers. And uh, I encountered something I'd never encountered before, the real, active, tangible presence of God. Worship was going and tears were streaming down my face and I experienced grace and forgiveness and something I'd never tasted before. And in that moment, I knew that the only place I ever wanted to be was in the presence of Jesus. 
I was instantly hooked. It was, it was, I was an addict. And for months, I would literally attend every single church service. I, they had three services there in the morning in a rented community center, and I would show up every single week, sit in the second row, and just glued to what was happening, worshiping and listening to the same sermon three times over and over and over again. And I was a preacher, I know how boring that must have been, but like I, I was just, I wanted to be where God was. And anytime the doors of the church were open, I was there. It did not matter what the event was. Even though I was 19, I showed up to the youth service and looked like a predator, but I just wanted to be with Jesus. <laughs> Men's events, I was there. Women's events, I was there. I did not care. I just wanted to be where God was. I was in the room. And, and I remember after months of, of running after God and positioning myself to receive from Him, I got an invitation with a number of the students and young adults from the ministry there to go to this youth conference that was in Seattle, Washington. And so we loaded into this van and we drove from Vacaville, California, all the way to Seattle, Washington. And for three days, I sat in this upper deck of an auditorium, the balcony seating, just enamored with what was happening. Worship, word hanging on every word from every preacher. And I remember on the third day of that conference, the very last session, I saw some things that I'd never seen before. Things that I probably didn't even believe existed before that moment. I saw the Holy Spirit begin to heal people in very legitimate, undeniable ways. Blind eyes being opened, broken limbs being healed. Things that no doctor could explain. I remember walking with a group of 400 people into this back room somewhere and praying to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And in one moment, just asking God, fill me, fill me, fill me. And instantly, I began to pray in a language I didn't even understand. Things I didn't even believe before I walked into that room. I was standing and receiving prayer from a group of people and a woman in her 60s came by, just tapped me on the shoulder and she said, Lord, give him a vision of his future. And whether you believe in this stuff or not, I definitely didn't. Right there in that moment, I fell down into a heap in the fetal position for 20 minutes. And over the course of that 20 minutes, God just downloading from heaven, showing me images and visions of what my future would look like. Undeniably meeting with the power and the presence of Jesus. Those were defining moments. Everything changed after that moment. There, there was no going back to who I once was, no going back to denial. I had met with the Holy One. But guess what? I went back to the same city, around the same group of people, same surroundings, same people who knew my reputation, but I was different. I had new vision. I saw things through a different lens from that moment forward. all because of a moment. And listen, I, I don't like hyping this stuff up. I'm not, a, I'm not that kind of dude anymore. Yeah, anymore, exactly. But I believe that the same Jesus that met Saul on the side of a road in Damascus is here right now. I believe that the same Jesus that met me in a balcony in Seattle, Washington is here right now. And I believe that there's a moment, an invitation available to those who would say, I need to encounter Jesus today. And if that's you, the stage is set. The red carpet is out. This is you and Jesus. So every head bowed, every eye closed right here, right now. For some, maybe this is emotional. For others, it's not. It might just be completely logical. The circumstances, the response does not matter. But Jesus wants to meet with some people today. Holy Spirit, right now, we welcome you. Even as we sang earlier, blow in this place. Blow upon our hearts. We need 
presence of Jesus. Father, for every heart that is open and positioned right now, I pray for an encounter, an encounter with the reality, the goodness, the grace, the forgiveness of Jesus. Wash over this space. And if that's you here this morning, there's no one's looking around. This is between you and, and, and the Lord, but just as Jesus met with Paul and began to have some conversations with him, as Jesus met with Saul there on the side of the road and began to pour out his grace on him, I'm sure there was a moment where Saul responded. A moment where he said, Jesus, I'm giving you the rest of my life. I'm giving you the rest of my days. I wanna make an opportunity for you to do that here today. If you're here and you feel the Holy Spirit calling you, drawing you, and you know you need to follow him from this day forward, I wanna pray a very simple prayer with you. And as I do that, um, I just would love to see who I'm praying with today. If, if you know you're meeting with God right now and you're trying to get things right, would you just quickly lift up a hand and look at me so I know who I'm praying with? Thank you, ma'am, I got you right there. Yeah, right there. Yeah, I got you right there. Yes, right there. Hallelujah. You can just repeat this prayer right there in your seat with me. Jesus, today I invite you in. I thank you for giving your life for mine. I give now my life to you. Thank you for putting blinders on me from my past, for erasing my mistakes and giving me a fresh start. Today, I choose to follow you. I need new vision. Show me what you have for me. Help me to walk in your ways, to live according to your word from this day forward until the day I lay eyes on you in heaven. Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Hey, thanks for taking the time to listen to the Father's House podcast. We hope it helped you wherever you're at in your journey. And listen, we want to pray with you if you're going through something right now that's difficult. You can go to our website, tfh.church, and click on the prayer and praise link and tell us how to join you in prayer. Until next time, be blessed.